Hi, you're listening to audio from Rock Hill Church. To check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. Hear the word of the Lord, John 10, 22 through 42. Then came the festival of dedication in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's columnate. The Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe, because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never be destroyed. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given all of them to me is greater. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for a good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a man, are making yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are God's. If he said that to them about God's, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world? Why then are you saying, I blaspheme, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I am doing them, and you do not believe, believe the works, so that you may know and believe that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they tried to arrest him, but he escaped their grasp. Jesus went out across the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing earlier, and he stayed there. And many people came to him. They were saying that though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a good shepherd. That you tracked down lost sheep. That you committed yourself to gathering up the scattered. To binding up the wounded. To healing the sick. To tending the lambs. Though human shepherds did not care for the sheep, you committed yourself to doing so. God, we thank you that we can't have a better shepherd than you. God, we thank you for your word this morning. And we pray that your blessing would be on our time here, that you would do a mighty work, that your spirit would be in fullest measure upon Jim as he speaks today. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Dustin, and good morning to you guys. And thank you, Ben. I'm so grateful for not just leading us. I appreciate that, but the passion 
uh, which you, you did, and it was so evident uh, this morning. We, we were talking this morning when we circled up before about longing, and you know, Chance was sharing with us the longing he has um, that we will worship, that we will come into a place that is safe, that is free, that is relaxed. My, I'm using my language, not necessarily quoting him, but, but um, I bet you have longings in your heart and soul that are good. All of us are familiar with longings in our heart and soul that are like, yeah, not quite so good. But there's also longings that God has put there. He's put eternity in our hearts. And I think these longings are important. I think they're important for us as individuals, but I also think they're important for our community as the Spirit works in us as we move forward as a community. I think the longings have something to say that God's put in, not just me and not just chance, not just leaders, but in us. This is how God speaks to the church, is through the community. Um, so I'm going to, at the end of the service today, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you, what's landing with you in, in the story? And uh, I'll, depending on how, much, how long I go, we can pray that I can get a handle on that. Uh, but like a couple of you may have something you want to articulate from the story today. One, one of my pet peeves, I guess, for good or for bad, is, is like the pressure for the preacher to like give you three simple, easy takeaways from the message. Uh, I'm very resistant to that. Uh, not, not that there's not a place for, for me or whoever's speaking to give us some application. I think that's fine. But my my understanding of my theology of church, re, there's a resistance to that because I believe the Spirit speaks to the church and through the church. And so uh, I'm not particularly good at application. Most of you know me know that. But part of that is because I want you to be, I, won't, I don't want you to just read the text. I don't want you to just hear the sermon. I want the text to read you. I want the Spirit to speak to you. I want the sermon to be yours. Otherwise, I've wasted my 30 hours I spent on it this week. I want it to land and, and, and provoke and nurture and encourage and maybe from time to time trouble you as it has troubled me as I've prepared. And I think that's how the Spirit speaks. And, and our longings are a part of that. Uh, so I'm going to ask you at the end of the service to say what landed with you. And I'm also... I don't know if I've ever done this. It's shameful, I, I think. I'm also going to give you an assignment at the end of the service today. So strap it on. Here it comes. So D Dustin read our text with his great voice uh, this morning. It starts off by saying, Then came the festival of dedication in Jerusalem. We actually have been in a section of John. Called, it's called the festival the cycle of festivals. And we see it's kind of bookended with two festivals. Festival of Tabernacles, that's where most of where we've been the last several months has been Jesus in Jerusalem for this big festival of Tabernacles, which kind of commemorated God dwelling with his people when they were in the wilderness and how they would set up these tents and tabernacle to track them, and it was a remembering of how God was mobile and how God was present 
with them. So that's where we've been. Like on our calendar, Festival of Tabernacles, we've been in the fall. Our September or October. Now John cues us in that this is no longer Festival of Tabernacles. It's now Festival of Dedication. That's a different festival. In fact, this is probably eight, ten weeks later. You may know Festival of Dedication. Now it's called Hanukkah. Uh, it's not a, quote, biblical festival. It commemorated, Festival of Dedication commemorated something in between our Old and New Testament. Second century B.C., about 164 B.C., the temple of God's people was rededicated. Why did it have to be rededicated? Because it had been invaded. The king of Assyria, his name was uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. He came and they invaded the temple. It wasn't pretty. He threw a bloody pig on the altar of God. He set up a, he set up a statue of Zeus, the Greek god, in the temple. The Jews revolted, and a man named Judas uh, Maccabees led the revolt, and they captured the temple back. This is what they're remembering. Festival of dedication was a rededication of the festival because the temple was important to the people of God. It had great symbolic meaning to them. It represented what is good and it represented God. It represented God's presence among his people. When the people walked by the temple, they were supposed to be reminded, we're the people of God. God is with us. The, the temple was a place where people went and remembered God together in community. So John tells us it's winter. It's chilly outside. Jesus is walking in Solomon's colonnade. You're Bible may read Solomon's porch. Solomon's colonnade was the only enclosed area of the outer courts of the temple. It was mostly indoors, so it's winter. He's inside. So John wants to see us us to see Jesus in the winter walking in the temple during Hanukkah. By the way, this is Jesus' last visit to the temple at least as John's telling the story. Well, we, we could spend a lot more time this morning talking about temple, uh, but we won't this morning. But I, I do want to make a couple of points. One, it's fascinating and courageous that Jesus is even in the temple. So don't see him in the temple, first of all, as an endorsement of the temple per se, uh, the reality is Jesus is at odds. Uh, he has issues, not with the temple per se, but he has issues with the leaders of the temple. So the temple isn't necessarily the most comfy, fr free-giving place for Jesus. But he's there. He's walking in the temple Jesus has issues with the leaders. We've seen that. I don't have to unpack that. But one of the things we're starting to notice as John's telling his story is the way Jesus is engaging his issues with the leaders. 
the way that these are playing out in his life, in their life, is fundamentally different. And I think there's, we're going to get a little more clear, clear look of that out of our text today, but we've seen it along. Jesus is addressing the issue strategically with them from time to time, but, but directly. The temple leaders, on the other hand, it, it's a bit different. We do see flashes. We see their resistance, for sure. But there's not just the resistance on the outside to Jesus. There's also something going on kind of in the corner of the temple, so to speak, kind of in the shadows. They're plotting. They're scheming. They're devising a way to get rid of Jesus. And now here he is walking freely on Solomon's porch in the temple. I mentioned the temple represents the dwelling place of God. Here's something else before we move on that's important. Temple is getting ready to get reframed in the person of Jesus. It's getting ready to be reworked, redesigned, renewed. In Jesus, the New Testament writers are going to take forward that there's a new temple. Jesus, who's making everything new, that's his gospel. He's making everything new that's going to take in the temple. Here's something else interesting about temple. The temple is Jesus, the word who becomes flesh. The temple, as the New Testament writers take it forward, is also the people of God. See, what God is making new is the building is being displaced by a person whose body is the church. And that's the temple. So there, there's a lot riding on this as Jesus is in the temple that no one else is really seen yet, but it is coming. So when John writes about temple, there's a lot more than brick and mortar that I think we can see. But today he's walking in the structure and Solomon's force. And John tells us, let's keep reading, the Jews gathered around him. So this is, there's no rest for Jesus. There's no, no like casual walk in the temple for him today. They're gathering around him and they're saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? Tell us plainly. <clears throat> if you are the Messiah, Messiah in Christ is essentially the same word. If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. <clears throat> and Jesus answers, I told you already, and you do not believe. And, and I, I wonder if John wants us to see a little bit of the irony here. These powerful men who are in the corner of the temple scheming to take Jesus down, are now demanding from Jesus that he be open and transparent. If you're the Messiah, come out with it. Tell us plainly. And Jesus says, I have. But then he says more. I've not only told you who I am, I've been showing you who I am. The works I do in my Father's name, they testify about me. What I've been saying, what I've been doing. 
So let's do a quick fact check on Jesus here and see what is it that he has claiming to have been telling them and what is it that he's been doing that's testifying to God. So quick run through. It's all we have time for. He refers himself. We see him in chapter 3. He's talking to this Jewish leader, Nicodemus, and he says to him, the one who came from heaven, that is me. We find so many statements of Jesus up till this point in John calling people to believe in him, but not just to believe in him. That's not necessarily meaningful, but he's offering them life. He does to Nicodemus. In chapter 5, he says, the son gives life to anyone the father is pleased to give it. He says, he who believes in me will cross from death to life. He says to the Jewish leaders later in that same chapter 5, you guys diligently study the scripture because you think in them there's life. No, these are the scriptures that point to me. He says in chapter 6, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him has life. He says to the Samaritan woman, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. When she presses him about who is he, he says, I am the Messiah who is speaking to you. The same thing he says to the blind man we saw in chapter 9 of John. And then he makes these public statements where he's tethering himself to God. He says in chapter 5, my father's always working and so am I. He says, and by the way, I'm only doing what I see my father doing. In chapter 8, he says, I'm not of this world, but on the son the father has placed his seal, his seal of approval. And then we can't leave out the I am statements. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the gate. And then recently, I am the good shepherd. These are his words. Like they're asking him to be plain and clear. But anyone who's paying attention attentively to Jesus, the language is not unclear. To them. It doesn't mean they always get it at first, but if they're listening, they're getting it. So those are some words. What about the works? What are the works he's claiming? Well, he's turned water into wine. Well, he's healed a Roman official's son. He's healed a man disabled for 38 years. He's healed a man born blind. He's fed 5,000 people with a happy meal. He's walked on the water. What are they not seeing? Jesus is saying, he's going to say later, if you can't believe my words, look at what I'm doing. See, for John, John's really interesting. John's Jesus BFF. And so, like, the other gospel writers, like Matthew, like, his compelling argument is listening, listen to the stories. Listen to Jesus talk about the kingdom of the heavens and you'll see the Messiah. Mark is going to tell us a little bit different. He's going to rapid fire Jesus' story through his followers. And he's, he wants to see Jesus the Messiah in his authority exercised 
in this group of people who are following him. You look at Luke. Uh, oh, man, Luke's, Luke's awesome. He wants us to see Jesus' compassion for the marginalized, the people who are invisible in the culture. And he wants us to see God touching these people. John. John's got this inside track with Jesus. So John has us hearing Jesus make these sometimes layered claims. I am the bread of life. I do what I see my father doing. But what John really wants, he he has his own name for them. He calls them signs. He wants us to see Jesus doing. He's like, watch him. Just watch him. It's not difficult to see it if you'll just watch. They're impactful. They're compelling. They are layered often. They're, they re, and here's why they're layered, I think. They require the reflection of those who are watching. They require ingesting them and, and thinking about them and trying to connect dots. Jesus is making these really strong I am statements. But what we don't find him doing is saying, hey, I'm the Messiah. You know, he doesn't have like a a shingle outside of his carpenter shop, you know, Messiah's millwork, you know, or Christ's carpenter. He's not doing that. Instead, what he's doing, he's custom designing as he's watching his father, words and works fitted for people who will have them. People who are willing to receive them. People who are, who are open to listen and meditate and take them in. He's on the streets walking this work. He's talking to common folks. He's not lurking in the shadows of the temple. But he's not spoon-feeding them either. He's speaking, and he's working, and he's saying, here, watch. And people are getting it. Some are believing, and they're following. So so here's, back to the Pharisees, here they are. This is going on. People are starting to follow Jesus. They are taking it in. They're hearing and they're seeing, and now here they are demanding, tell us in black and white. Who are you? And the stage is set on Solomon's porch in the temple. And it's what Jesus says now that will be the interpretive key to help us understand what's going on here. I've told you, I've shown you, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep, he says. My sheep, listen. To my voice. I know them. And they follow. Jesus is saying the problem in our, this problem we're having in communication, the problem's not here. It's with you. Because first of all, you've got an identity issue. You're not my sheep. And they wouldn't have disagreed with that. They'd say, dang straight, we're not your sheep. But he tells them, my sheep don't just hear me. They listen. They take it in. They reflect. They connect the dots. 
You, on the other hand, you've heard, but you've not been listening with an open mind and an open heart, and you will not believe. This is psychological brilliance on Jesus' part. He's calling them out. There's a sense in which he's, they're deflecting their resistance to Jesus and blaming it on him. Jesus has a very different perspective. That's not how he sees it. So he's going to go on now. He's going to go beyond what he said earlier in the chapter. Basically what we just heard him say, he's already said it once, right? Last week in chapter 10, we heard that. But now listen to what he adds. Because he's he's about to make some surprising statements that are going to get increasingly explosive. Solomon's porch is about to catch on fire. Listen to what he says. I give them eternal life. And they will never be destroyed. No one will snatch them out of my hands. You remember, Jesus, what he said back in verse 10 about the thieves and robbers? He's now unpacking that. He says, I will give them life, abundant life. No thief or robber take them away. They can't steal them in the night. They can't snatch them away. Whether I, I think there's probably double meaning here with the thieves and robbers. I think he's talking about them. He's, I think he's also talking about evil spirit, the enemy, Satan. I think he's probably doing both. But it's what he says next that's the flashpoint. Listen to what he says. My father who has given them all to me is greater. Greater than who? Greater than the thieves and robbers. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. That was explosive. Because he just said, you can't take them from my father. Now hear what he's going to say. Verse 30. I and my father are, you got it? One. And John tells us, and so the Jews picked up stones so that they might stone him. Of course they did. What he just said, that did it. That's what they were looking for. That's what maybe they thought they were baiting him to say. I and my father are one. So Jesus answers, we see more brilliance here. For which one of my good works are you stoning me for? Oh, no, we're not stoning you for anything you did. We're stoning you for what you just said. It's a blasphemy. Because you are making yourself out to be God. And I I think for us, the readers, it's important that we make sure we have a grasp on what's going on right here. On Solomon's porch. Because the leaders got it right. Jesus has made himself out to be God. And that's why they're about to kill him. To them, this was clearly blasphemy. Except it really wasn't. And therein lies the problem for them. 
Now, if Jesus were asserting himself to be a rival God, to their Jehovah God, they were well within their rights to stone him right then and there. But there's a wrinkle here that they can't get ironed out. Jesus isn't claiming to be a rival God. He's not claiming to be a second God alongside their God or in opposition to their God. He's claiming something different, something fundamentally different, something no one else had ever claimed. Jesus' first response is really fascinating. He answers them, hmm, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he said that to them about God's, to whom the word of God came, and Scripture can't be set aside, what about the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world? Why are you saying that I blaspheme because I am a son of God? Now, we, we don't have time to dive into this. He's, he's quoting Psalm 82. You can ask anybody from my CLC if you want them to exposit on this. We've been camping out in that chapter and insights out of it for months. <laughs> A whole semester. But it's a tactic Jesus is using. I think he's he's playing with them a little bit here. But not in a smart, elecky way. But I think he first wants them to see, like, your own scriptures bear witness. And there's there's these handful of times in the Old Testament where humans are called, like, little G-gods. Never big G-gods. And and that's not it. Don't get stuck here. It's not his primary response. We've got to move forward or we will be here all day. Because he's saying something else. Listen to what he says next. If I'm not doing the works of my father, don't believe me. You shouldn't. But if I am and you still can't get there, would, would you just watch closer what I'm doing? Would you just think about what you've seen me do? Who you've seen me heal? What you've seen me turn from this to that? Would you think about walking on the water for a moment? I think in a unique way, Jesus is showing them mercy here. I may be wrong about this. This is my own reflection. But I think he's showing them mercy. I think he knows, look, what I am claiming is difficult. And it makes sense to me that it would be difficult for you to see me and Jehovah God as the same essence, that we're one. Now, there's a whole Old Testament line and prophecy that's predicting Jesus, but that's beside the point. I think Jesus understands this is hard. So he's saying, look, if if my words aren't landing with you yet, just camp out with the works and watch me. Because if you'll do that attentively, you got to get curious. Anybody can say anything, but there ain't nobody else doing what I'm doing. Come on, guys, lean in. That's what he's saying to them, I believe. But they won't listen. That's the tragedy in the story. So all along in his gospel, John has been painting a portrait. 
In the center of the portrait, there's Jesus, the good shepherd, the light of the world, the bread of life, the healer, the miracle worker. And then in the portrait, there's people around him, people who've been listening, people who've been curious. There's a Samaritan woman, there's a crippled man, there's a blind man, there's even Nicodemus. Don't forget Nicodemus, his story's still going on in the shadows somewhere. And for these people, for these people, Jesus is either becoming clear to them or he has become clear to them. They've leaned in and listened. They don't necessarily understand everything he's saying, but they have understood enough. And they've said, yeah, this is the Messiah. And they're believing his words. They're trusting his works, and they're following. They're taking up and following. It's been enough for them. And then the other characters in that, this portrait, you know, the Pharisees, the leaders, they've been hearing same things everybody else has been hearing. But they're not listening. They've been seeing everything else the other folk have been seeing. But they're not really seeing. They're just watching why? Because their paradigms won't let them. Because their traditions won't let them. Because their religion won't let them. They have, in their mind, traditions and scribes and temple and laws to protect. And as long as those paradigms are in play, as long as their fears are in play, they're not going to believe him. They can't believe him. Jesus for them is not enough. And it will never be. He will never be enough for them as long as those are their drivers. But for those who are following him, it's clear. I think this is the teaching of this text. Those who are watching and listening those who are not. What has been unclear in the past for the sheep, it's now clear. They are his sheep. They listen for his voice. He knows them and they're following. Their, their faith is genuine. It's not a faith that's just driven by guessing or wishing. It's a faith that has listened, that has examined, that's reflected. In their own ways, they're, they're mulling over what they're hearing and what they're seeing, as well as what it cost follow him. See, these are radicals, these people. You can't be a follower of Jesus and not be a radical. He makes it so. You have to take up the cross and follow. This is going to cost you everything. He who does not, in relation to your love for me, hate his own family, his wife and children, his own life, cannot be my disciple. This is what Jesus is demanding. Nothing less will do. So Jesus is crystal clear. But not to the Pharisees. They're holding on. John's poster child, I think, at least in this festival cycle, is this blind man. This man formerly known as blind. He doesn't belong. He doesn't really belong in the temple. He's cursed and then he gets thrown out. But as we've said before, where do we find him? 
out there in the streets worshiping. He is doing, chance what you long our people to do. He's worshiping, right, where he's at. He got plenty of problems. This dude is in a heap of trouble now. He thought he had problems when he's blind. He got all kinds of problems now. He got the Pharisees coming after him, and so do his parents. But you know what? He can see, and he has been given eternal life. And Jesus just said, ain't nobody can destroy you. Nobody can take you out of my father's hands. You know what? The man formerly known as blind, he's going to be just fine. He's going to be okay. So we have this contrast. Jesus, bona fide sheep, listening, following, and the respectable, quote-unquote, religious leaders, demanding and still not believing. I think that's what John wants us to see. So, I, I don't, you know, I can't tell you. Now's the time where I'm going to ask you, like, what's landing with you uh, in the story? What are you hearing? Um, what, what are you hearing that could be a seed of, like, i got to reflect more on that, or I think God wants to speak to me through that piece or that word or what I'm seeing. What are you hearing? I'd like to hear from two or three of you. We have a few minutes here. Not, not a lot, but two or three minutes. What are you hearing? It's a little bit different. So the last three verses, I'm going to read them here for you. Justin, or Dustin read them already. I'm going to read them again. Um, what I want you to do is spend some time with these three verses. They're not going to come at you like, boy, those are the richest. That's the richest scripture I've ever heard. They're not like that. Uh, it's kind of a report at the end. I'm going to give you two weeks. Um, It'd be helpful if you read them every day, but that's not really necessary. I'd like you to spend some time with them and reflect on them and, and ask the Lord, Lord, is, would you say anything to me through this? Just maybe journal your impressions. You don't have to be right. That's not the, the most important thing as you get started. Just journal what, what are you thinking about as you're, as you're meditating, reading these verses. So let me read it again. This is at the very end of the story. Jesus went out again across the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing earlier. So he's crossed to the east side of the Jordan River and he stayed there. And many people came to him. No rest for the weary. They were saying that no, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man is true. And many believed in him there. So spend a little time with that. And we'll, so we're not going to do it next week because David Manor will be with us, which we'll say a little bit more about in a second. But we'll, we're going to start the kind of the message section in two weeks, February 12th, with the question, what have you been reflecting on and hearing, and um, 
from, from this text. I don't have anything in mind I'm hoping you say. Uh, it touched a longing in me, but you may have something very different that the Spirit might say to our community. So would you do that? And uh, I'll try to remind you in, in the weekly email and so forth. I'd like you to think about it. Don't just ask, what am I reading? Ask, what's reading me, perhaps. So take notes. Okay, let me pray, and then uh, worship team, you come on up. Lord, this morning as we, we read this meditation literature, Lord, it's there for us uh, to now do what Jesus' sheep do. Listen for his voice. Believe in him. Follow him. God, would you do that work in each of us? We live in, in rhythms, Lord, of, of our own time in your word and then hearing your word uh, most weeks. And uh, Lord, we pray that that would do its work, that it would be perpetually reading us. Lord, as we do this particular exercise of these three pretty simple verses, would you uh, we, we ask that you would speak to us in a way that uh, might, might meet us where we are, might be what we need, um, might speak to your people. Lord, thank you for being, you Cherise were a rebel for us. As we sang earlier, thank you that your, your love looks reckless for us because it's not restrained it's 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 there it's for us it's within our reach it sometimes comes to us very layered because it's asking something from us I thank you God that you don't spoon feed us I wish sometimes you would but Lord when we lean in and listen and trust Lord that's our work that work of faith and we know that's where fruit comes from, is when your grace lands on our faith in Jesus. Lord, do that work in us anew. We pray in your name. Amen.